everyone, and welcome to our 50 for 50 podcast, 50 stories for 50 years, as we celebrate three major milestones in Dartmouth's history. As many of you know, and some of you can remember firsthand, 1972 was a pivotal year. Women joined the undergraduate community as Dartmouth students, following several years of women exchange students on campus. The Black Alumni of Dartmouth Association, or BATA, is also entering its 50th year, and so is the Native American program. Quite the trifecta of anniversaries, and also not a coincidence that so much happened during this critical time. I'm Jennifer Avellino, class of 1989, past president of the Dartmouth Alumni Council, and a former senior producer at CNN. As a journalist, my early days were spent as the news director for WDCR WFRD, Dartmouth Broadcasting. I've had the good fortune to meet and bring to the airwaves remarkable people over the years, and this podcast, in many ways, brings me home. Over the next few months, I'll be talking to inspiring, influential, and fascinating Dartmouth alumni. They'll reflect on what it was like to be a woman, a Native American, a person of color at Dartmouth, and how their time at the college led to the lives they're pursuing today. Our guest today is Matteo Romero, an award-winning painter, well-known for his bold use of color and texture with thick strokes of oil paint in his portraits and landscapes. After graduating from Dartmouth in 1989, he attended the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and later received an MFA in printmaking from the University of New Mexico. His work has been exhibited around the United States and Canada. In 2019, he and his brother Diego were named Living Treasures by Santa Fe's Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, an award honoring Native artists who've made outstanding contributions to indigenous arts and culture. Mateo, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Great to have you with us and good to, good to see you and hear you here on the airwaves. Um, the annual powwow takes place in early May on the Dartmouth Green the 50th honoring powwow is happening this spring. Um, in 2009, you were commissioned by the Hood Museum to create a series of 10 paintings inspired by the Dartmouth powwow of that year. What was that whole experience like for you? And tell me about the specific process you used to create the paintings. Absolutely. Um, it, it was an amazing experience. We initially approached uh, James and Susan Wright and uh, they were they were incredibly supportive, and they were huge fans of Louise Erdrich. And at the time, we were doing a lot of um, photographic mixed media painting. We were doing uh, these these large format um, photographic embedded transferred portraits. Uh, my wife Melissa and I um, went out to the powwow, and we spent the time taking photographs of people that were Dartmouth people who were dancing and, and former alums and, and native people out at the powwow. And it was, was really amazing. Actually, it was, I was, I was a little bit uh, starstruck. I, I took a, a portrait of Louise Erdrich and her daughter, Aza Erdrich were both dancing at the time. And I'm a huge fan of her writing. I, uh, I was very uh, flattered to be given the opportunity to take her photograph and make, make her portrait, um, and her daughter's as well. What did it ultimately feel like to have your work hang in the Hood Museum? It, it was a, <clears throat> it was an undergraduate fantasy of mine. You know, I was, I was an undergraduate, 85 to 89, and, and all undergraduate students 
you know, we're, we're exposed to these amazing instructors. I, I was with Berjan Bogosian initially, and Ben Moss came over from Iowa and took over the painting department and the whole art department. So I had these huge figures around me that were very mature, you know, interesting, nuanced, idiosyncratic artists. And they were in major collections and museums, and they were in the hood, and they had a presence there. And I was, you know, heavily interested in looking at the shows and the exhibits in the museum. And, you know, every 18-year-old kid dreams of, you know, one day being in the museum. And largely through the efforts of, of the, uh, the Wrights, President Wright, and also um, the Hood Museum people, um, I was able to do that. It was, it was remarkable. It was a high watermark for me. Each painting was uh, a portrait of one person. And as you mentioned, they were mixed media, included photography and painting. Tell me how the photograph and the painting interacted with each other. These were exactly, as you say, they were photographs I shot with, uh, I think it was a 35 millimeter Nikon FE2 black body, which is pretty much an old school celluloid analog camera and a telephoto lens. And there was no, you know, Photoshopping or editing or any of that kind of post production. Uh, we just enlarged them and placed them in the canvas using a matte medium, a transfer process. And you, you essentially wind up with a giant black and white photograph on top of a white canvas. They're, they're oversized canvases. I thought it was this real collision between photography and paint. And um, I, I think it's, you know, there's something about the way our society looks at photography where we've been acclimated to, you know, accept photography. It's, it's, it's very literal in some respects, right? Like, if you, if you draw a portrait of someone with a crayon or a piece of charcoal, it's very um, subjective, right? I mean, people look at it and think, you know, this is an expression of the, the sitter, the model, it's their psychology, it's the expression of the artist's hand and their emotion and their psychology. You know, it's, they, they, they think it's very subjective. But when you start talking about photography, people tend to think of it as being sort of objective, right? There's an objectivity that's layered into it, perhaps. And People have been acclimated to look at this stuff through media and television and even like old newspaper, you know, when people were still reading printed newspaper periodicals, um, there's an aspect of that that, that gets carried over into the, um, into the portrait painting process. But, but the paint is actually kind of wild on some of it. You know, it's, it's a lot of movement and, you know, wet into wet brush marks and, these surfaces are kind of crashing and colliding and moving through each other. That's that's a lot of the Ben Frank Moss influence. You know, I was looking, I studied with Ben Ben Moss at Dartmouth, and he was this um, kind of you know expressionist landscape painter. So you know, he talked about things like paint, which was breathing and moving, and and he talked about um, this idea that the painter. <clears throat> takes essentially a blank canvas and and creates a space in it or a world or some kind of experience and and, and this experience didn't exist before and, the, and this, there's sort of this almost like a spiritual kind of component to how Ben Moss talked about painting and how he made paintings 
and and that was um, very you know resonant to me as a younger painter. I, I looked at these older, mature painters and the Hood Museum, and I thought these these people have really figured some things out that I hadn't I hadn't really thought about. Um, you certainly spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about these things. Our listeners, by the way, can see more about your paintings, including the powwow suite in the link on our in our website that features the 50 Stories Project at alumni.dartmouth.edu. Um, Mateo, you mentioned the writer Louise Erdrich. She is one of the portraits in the powwow series, along with her daughter, Aza. She danced. They both danced in the powwow that year when you were there with your camera and then your portraits back in your studio. Um, Louise, of course, in addition to being a, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, is a member of the Dartmouth class of 1976, the first four-year class of women at Dartmouth, one of the other milestone anniversaries that we're celebrating. As you mentioned, she played an important role in the early days of the college's Native American program. Um, can you reflect for me on the importance of these three anniversaries, what it means to celebrate these three groups in an evolving Dartmouth? So, so my exposure to these, these three particular groups, um, I was active with the Native American program and, and, and the Native Americans at Dartmouth as a, as a student and later as an alumni. And then I was in a black fraternity when I was on uh, campus when I was at school and that's Alpha Phi Alpha. That was the Theta Zeta chapter at Dartmouth. And later, my daughter is a female Native American alumni from Dartmouth. She's a 17. So these three groups um, have been interconnected in my life for longer than I can even remember. It doesn't seem to be a time when I wasn't around these very powerful women, these very, you know, native and black women and black people and native people. And all this stuff has, has been interconnected in my, in my artwork and my, and my philosophy and my thinking, my aesthetics. And, and I love it. You know, I, I, you know, take my hat off to Dartmouth, putting a real presence behind, behind the, the, the words, you know, we, we go to all these different institutions and foundations in our life and they all talk about, you know, integration and, and, uh, you know, equity and, and all these kinds of words come out in this modern discourse we're having at this time in the country, you know, and, and sometimes we're, we're really underwhelmed by our communities, uh, being, not being received in places. And then and these words can be rhetorical, right? You can go to institutions and foundations and colleges and universities, and you can feel kind of shut out and you can feel alienated and you can feel like you're not part of the discourse and there's not a place for the table. I can say, in all honesty, I always felt there was a place for me at the table at Dartmouth, and still do. Um, the Hood Museum is a very interesting program. You know, they they have a major presence there. Um, they they do a lot with, um, the, I think, the Native female perspective at this point. They have the curator Jamie Powell over there, and John Stromberg, and they're they're doing some really interesting stuff with um, a kind of um, I guess a broader voice, you know, I guess I would say uh, maybe aspects of voices and communities that haven't been foregrounded, which are now being brought out and are being looked at closer and are giving their, they're giving their time in the light now, which is, 
I mean, who wouldn't want that? You know, who, who wouldn't want people, who wouldn't want Louise Erdrich, you know, giving your commencement speech or mm-hmm. writing the introduction to the, uh, some amazing thing at, going on at the college. I, I, I was really starstruck by her in particular. You know, she was um, a big figure to me as an undergraduate in terms of, the, you know, the reading I was doing. And, and uh, I, I just had a great time painting her portraits and her daughter's charming and I think she was dating my nephew at the time. That's <laughs> my brother, Diego Romero's son, Santiago Romero. Who so, was a Dartmouth but, class of yeah. 2010, correct? It, yeah, it's a small world. It, it is, is a small yeah. world. It's Your small brother, world. Diego's a potter as well. well. We'll certainly talk about him later. And of course, The Hood has a a really large Native American art collection, as as you've mentioned. They're, they brought it into the present and concentrating on on collecting the artists of today. Um, you come from a line of artists in New Mexico, from the Cochiti Pueblo, your your grandmother, your father, but you came to Dartmouth from an urban environment. You grew up in Berkeley, California. Was art in your sights when you got to Hanover? It was always in my sights. Um, both my brother and myself are urban Indians. You know, we, we've, we've lived in Santa Fe for like the last maybe 30 years. Um, so um, we have actually gotten closer to our, our village and our people, and we've been more participatory living here. But initially, we were born and raised in Berkeley, California. My father was a Dunn School painter. He was part of the Dorothy Dunn School uh, training uh, at Santa Fe Indian School. And the work is it's referred to as sort of ethnographic or ethnography. This was, uh, gee, probably like in the 40s, you know, like, they were they were like looking at the dances and ceremonies and things like the harvests in the villages when the villages still were planting crops in northern New Mexico, and they were feeling that they needed to sort of train these artists in high school who were very, you know, precocious and talented and really interesting individuals in their own right. They felt they had to train them how to do this type of illustrational ethnography so they could capture the stuff and, and kind of documented in, in a way not 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 photographic but you know this sort of hand-built um, drawing and painting with water water-based material and, and so my dad was part of that and he was actually a very accomplished Dunn school painter he did not stay in santa fe he moved to the bay area he was the, he was a, a veteran he was a marine in the korean war and he was convalescing at oakland naval hospital he was wounded in Korea at the 38th parallel. And he met my mother who was, who was white. And she was a student, an anthropology student at UC Berkeley at the time, undergrad. And she was volunteering at the intertribal friendship house in Oakland. And they began dating. And he was, he was a bit older than her. He was, it was a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a scandal, I guess. She was maybe, 18 probably like 34 and they began dating and, and they actually you know they married and had us kids and, and we were raised in, in the bay area we're, we're east bay kids so very urban urban natives um but my dad was a full-blooded uh coach de pueblo indian and he spoke carries and he spoke spanish second and he spoke english third his his mother my grandmother is Teresita Chavez Romero. She's a considered a sort of matriarch of um, traditional revival of Coach de Polychrome, which is 
these, these really beautiful eccentric kind of vessels with these sort of um, off-white bodies and these red bases and they have border panel arrangements and done in bee plant with life forms and thunderclouds and little shrine motifs and so my brother and I were steeped in all of this stuff our entire lives. I don't think we even really consciously understood it, but we're kind of like kids who are jazz prodigies that were raised in jazz musician families. And then you just kind of emerge into your own voice at some point. And people are like, when were you, when did you know, you know how to do that? Or when were you aware of how to use that instrument? Or why did you place that note there? And, and the answer, you know, for me, it's, just, you know, I, I don't really consciously know. I just, I was always around people that were doing this. One of the interesting things about it is in, in, in the social group I lived in, people really define themselves at early age by how they, how well they drew, you know, that was kind of the social status in, in the, the group of boys I grew up with in Berkeley was how, how good their drawings were, how, how clean they were and how, how well. The compositions looked, what the anatomy looked like, and these kind of formal issues. Your portraits in particular seem new and old to me at the same time. They're, you're creating something modern, but with a nod to another time. Do, do you feel that way? I, I feel that way very much. I feel like I feel like they're portraits of people. You know, originally they started with portraits of people who had already passed. The, the first paintings were very, they were old Curtis photographs. There were Loomis and Parkhurst photographs of people in the village from Coach Di Pueblo. They were shot in 1920, 1910, 1930. There were Roland Reed photographs of Indians on, you know, Blackfeet at, at Glacier Bay photographs of Indians on horses. So the first whole series, there were actually, you know, images of people that had passed. And they, they, were, they were sort of these, um, you know, these ghost portraits almost, right? The, this kind of moment that was captured in the past. And I brought it back up. They had very clear references to to being sort of um, archaic, almost you know historic. They were they were uh, overexposed sometimes, and there were these spiritual images and rituals. And this, these people looked different than they look nowadays. You know, their their body types were different, and they were they were, they were really interesting documents. And I, I felt very much that they were related to the past. And some of the earlier pieces, we would keep the the color palettes more subdued. They were more uh, high. They were more like monochromatic color palettes. So some of the very early, earliest ones, they seem very ancient. They seem atavistic. They seem like, uh, you know, like the first dance or the first, you know, the first fire or something, right? These like kind of like primal ancient things. Later, I started doing my own photography. I realized that for me to really explore this venue, I had to generate my own source. I had to make my own photo source. So I, I became a very bad photographer, but but I was able to capture portraits of people, living people, and use them as source for the paintings. So I have tons, like thousands of photographs, maybe like 10,000 photographs I've shot of native people. And they're in you know potlatches and corn dance lines, and they're in ceremonies, and ne- never in places that the Indians were not comfortable with me being. I would, I would never take a picture of someone without their permission. So it, it did shift. They became portraits of living people. With someone like um, Louise Erdrich, for instance, and I knew there was this moment of beauty that, that would emerge and that I had to be very focused because I'm a, I'm a very average photographer. I'm a very mediocre with photographs. I, I'm not good with technology even. You know, I, That's one of the reasons I had this old analog 
silver gelatin 35 millimeter camera right, with an old telephoto lens. It's all manual. Well, we're very fortunate you were able to capture those moments and translate them into the powwow suite that could be shared with all of us. Um, in recent years, Mateo, you've painted these stunning landscape scenes around New Mexico um, and some very recognizable scenes, including one painted by another artist named Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, that's quite recognizable. Um, in your work, there's this amazing color and light and sky with rock formations and mountains. How do you bring that back into your studio, the light and the color? <clears throat> so these are this is a radical break in, in what I'm doing. Um, maybe about five years ago, I shifted out of doing these photographic mixed media paintings. And they're figure ground, they're photographic figure ground, they're figures in space. So they're, they're, um, they're figurative painting. And about five years ago, I, I really shifted into doing almost exclusively um, these oil-painted, heavier landscapes with this really built-up surface. The, the skies are so, the clouds are so phenomenal here. And you see that in Coach D pottery. You know, Coach D, historic Coach D pottery and contemporary pottery has the rain cloud motif, which is a series of billowing arcs with the, that form a kind of cumulus cloud effect. So this is something, even before O'Keeffe, the Coach D's are actually, you know, 500 years ago, they're actually looking, 750 years ago, the Coach D's are actually recording this, the, the, the skies in northern New Mexico, how, how unique it is. Um, so all these spaces we paint, you know, all of New Mexico has, in particular, northern New Mexico, it's like the heartland of the Pueblo people. It's, it's all got this, you know, heavy existing indigenous spiritual vibe to it. It's got this heavy presence. The, the, you know, what, another thing that's really interesting to me is as I studied the landscape and the language and the connection, the etymology, the languages of these places, the names of the places, I talked to my relatives here and, and my in-laws, and uh, I learned more about their ideology, about their connection to the land. And they don't have, you know, the Pueblo connections to land. It's not a European connection to land. You know, man is not sublime and distinct. The landscape is not sublime from man. There's not a viewing of the landscape. The Pueblo people believe that you're actually part of the landscape. You're, you're like this moment. You know, they, they believe in energy and transmission and clouds and rain and migration of people and your physical place and movement in the space. And they believe in moisture coming down in the form of rain and snow in the wintertime. And they're, they're heavily agrarian. They're, 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 you know, they're agrarian crop farming people, historically. And all this ties into their view of human beings not distinct from the landscape. Their, their word for the energy that flows through the landscape and through human beings is Bo'a, which is like a life energy. Bo is like a pathway or a river or, or a, a passage. And, and when you're out here in a place like Galisteo and you're looking at these ancient petroglyphs and the you know rain clouds come over you and the rain comes down, you see the lightning, you really understand it. Like it's like this kind of feeling in you. It's not a verbal experience. It's, it's somatic. It's of the body, right? And, and I think that the paintings, you know, even though we, we talk about them and write about them, and I, you know, we do all that, the paintings are actually somatic. They're, they're of the body. They're actually these, these kind of visceral emotional responses 
to, to the landscape, to your place in the landscape, to the sky and the rain and the clouds and the lightning and the crops that grow and the water that comes out and the sound of the dances and the drums. It's a very somatic experience. It is a liminal passage as the earlier paintings were, but it, it's a little different because there's, there's no photography. It's just, you know, you stand in front of a canvas with a, a paintbrush and some color and maybe you have a couple sketches and a little watercolor drawing and some notes about how you felt about something on a certain day. And you might check out a couple of photographs you've taken for source to look at. And then you kind of create something. It kind of becomes manifest. Um, but but it's not really verbal. It's kind of pre-verbal. You mentioned your in-laws. We've talked about others in your family. Your brother, Diego, is a well-known potter. Your sister-in-law is a photographer. We mentioned Santiago, who's an artist, Dartmouth class of 2010. Your wife comes from a family of potters. She has been a potter. Does this affect how you approach your art? You're alone in your studio, presumably, when you're painting, but are you part of what you've talked about, something much larger? In, in my life, it's been very real. You know, I've been, I've been, since a very early age, my father sort of covered me with art and culture and song and language. And my brother and I were steeped in Rio Grande Pueblo art and culture and song and language. And my wife is a potter from the village and she comes from a lineage. She's a potter coming out of, you know, her mother is a Thelma Gutierrez was her maiden name and, and Petra Gutierrez was a matriarch in Santa Clara pottery. She's a very famous potter, revivalist like my grandmother. And her father, Joe Talachi, um, his mother, his grandmother was Luteria Tensio she's a huge figure in San Juan Pueblo, Oke Owinge. So she's actually like an art prodigy. Melissa Talachi is her maiden name. She's a phenomenal potter. And my, my brother's a phenomenal potter, super well-known, super fantastic. His, uh, his wife, my sister-in-law, Cara Romero, is a former student of mine when I was teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Recently at Dartmouth to speak at the Hood Museum. Yeah, with, with her with her photographs, she's, she's stellar. She's a huge voice and, and native and contemporary native and women and, and all this stuff and, and deservedly so. Um, and your daughter Povey, Dartmouth class daughter, of Povey. Dartmouth class of twenty seventeen, following in all of your footsteps. I don't know she's if she a, would like to hear that, but yeah, tell yeah. me about her I, art. I was hoping for a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. <laughs> no, you weren't. Like I wanted a brain surgeon, you know, but. Um, she's she's a she's a great artist. She's a phenomenal artist. Um, she has a very personal voice. It's not very commercial. I think at this point, she does multiple exposure analog photographs using medium format film, and she pioneered this. This is a technique she was taught at the uh, Black Visual Arts Center. They have this amazing facility at Dartmouth, which was never there when I was there, and they showed her how to do this. It's, it's a, you know, a, it's a technique and she takes these really nuanced, unpredictable photographs. They don't look like anything anyone else is doing. They don't, they're, they're uniquely her own voice. They're usually multiple exposures of nude native women and she places them in the landscape where she puts like certain like uh, items on them and kind of does these multiple exposures on one piece of photo paper. 
and they're very they're very beautiful they're very nuanced and very ephemeral and very feminine and very powerful and and they have stories behind them and ideas embedded in them and they're great and she also does ceramics you know because of her mother her mother's exposure to her at an early age so perhaps you and your daughter are a bridge between those two worlds older art and and today's modern art I, I'm curious to know how you saw the college through her eyes and as we finish our conversation for you to talk about the Dartmouth of today the, the directions it's heading in with my daughter um, or or but- any native students at the college now headed into art or otherwise what do you hope what are your hopes for them and how the college relates to Native American students on this 50th anniversary? With the art, I, I see it becoming increasingly digital and more electronic. You know, I, I think that the mediums are moving out of things like you know, maybe more classic things like a painting or like a pottery piece, and they're moving more into electronic platforms. So film, videography, um, mixed media, mixed media installations, a lot of spoken word, a lot of you know, things like that are showing up in, in nowadays. So, so I see that shift occurring. And uh, I'm not opposed to that. I, I, you know, it's, it wouldn't matter if I was. I mean, people, people, younger people are, are you know, we, we talked about how people are acclimated to look at photography at some point, you know, and I think it, people are acclimated now to look at electronic media and digital media and screens and telephones. And so it's moving in that direction. Um, with the college, I think it's good. I mean, I, 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 this is a place, in my opinion, it's, had its work cut out for it to really live up to its um, adopted charter of educating Native students. And they brought women in and, and they have an interesting you know, presence of, of black people and, and people of color at the school. It's not a paradigm shift. At this, the, I think the paradigm shift has already occurred. You know, I think it occurred 50 years ago. And now it's a matter of just building that platform higher, just adding more material, more resource, resource and more uh, energy into this original vision. I think just articulating that vision and, and adapting to how it's changing with, with younger people. Well, this has been an incredibly thought-provoking conversation. Mateo Romero, thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Such a pleasure. So thanks to all of you for listening to our 50 for 50 podcast series supported by our Office of Alumni Relations. I'm Jennifer Avellino. My thanks to our co-producers, Catherine Dara and Charlotte Albright, and to Dartmouth's Media Production Group for technical assistance. We hope you'll join us for our next podcast episode marking Dartmouth's three milestone anniversaries. You can find out more about our 50 for 50 anniversary series at alumni.dartmouth.edu.